T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Chicago is going to make history this week. That is one prediction we can make with certainty. The city's next mayor will be an African-American woman, and that will be a first. Tuesday, voters will choose between, in order of their ballot appearance, former federal prosecutor Lori Lightfoot and Tony Preckwinkle, the president of the Cook County Board. We will talk with both of them this weekend. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. Tony Preckwinkle and Lori Lightfoot have had a rough-and-tumble race, even by Chicago standards, with rhetoric about past and present scandals thrown about, contentious and numerous debates, and the kind of racially charged remarks you might not expect in a contest like this. The most recent polls show Lori Lightfoot leading, but one for Crane Chicago Business and Channel 11 showed almost 30% of the voters still undecided. So clearly we could use some more discussion amid all the noise of the campaign. This weekend, we're going to hear from both of the mayoral candidates in separate interviews and no constricting time limits. We'll start with Tony Preckwinkle, who is not only the head of the Cook County Board, but also the chair of the Cook County Democratic Party. I interviewed the candidate in her campaign headquarters on North Wabash. In this last week before Election Day, you have hit Lori Lightfoot hard on how she handled a uh, 2004 fire investigation while she was at OEMC. A judge roundly criticized her about that. She says your words are out of desperation. Her view is uh, supported by then OEMC director Ron Huberman. What should the public think about this back and forth? Well, let me just fill in the context. You know, there there was a terrible fire and the allegation was that uh, the 311 operators didn't respond uh, quickly enough, decisively enough, that there were several calls were made that weren't responded to. You know, any human em- enterprise, things are going to go wrong, but the test of leadership is what you do when bad things happen. And in this instance, uh, in this instance, there was a fire that resulted in the death of, of, of four children, and, you know, the family sued, and the judge in the case uh, described Lori Lightfoot's conduct as shockingly lax and, and cavalier and said there was a reasonable argument that the city was deliberately hiding evidence from the plaintiffs. You know, the challenge of leadership always is, you know, what are you going to do when bad things happen? And you have to take responsibility and try to fix things and not cover up. And in this instance, I think it's quite clear that the judge felt that there was a cover-up and that there was not an acknowledgement that things had gone wrong and, and responsibility taken. You know, and, and it's always a challenge in leadership to take responsibility when bad things happen and try to fix them. And that's not what she did in this instance. She engaged in a, in a cover-up that protected City Hall. 
Now, Ron Huberman, who was the uh, head of the Office of Emergency Management and Communications at the time, says that when Lori Lightfoot learned that there was an allegation, that there was a delayed dispatch, uh, she tracked every detail down. Lightfoot says she directed that 911 call tapes be preserved, and that was one of the issues in this case, that material was not preserved, and she acknowledges that it was not. But Huberman is backing her up on this. Well, he's her boss. I would expect her to back, I expect him to back her up. But the judge in the case, the judge in the case, again, described her performance as shockingly lax and cavalier and described it as a cover-up, basically, hiding evidence. You know, I'm not surprised that her boss would say, you know, <laughs> that she did the right thing. However, the judge, the judge in the case thought otherwise, and I think that's the critical issue. You know, you have to take responsibility when things go wrong and fix them and not blame subordinates. I think she said she put a a sticky note on, on a subordinate's desk, an administrative assistant's desk, and said that that person ought to follow up, and then, you know, claim that the person didn't do it. You know, that's not taking responsibility. That's blaming your subordinates. And as I said, the judge was pretty explicit that she felt there was a cover-up involved. Um, the rhetoric in this campaign has, uh, has, has gotten increasingly heated as, as we've come closer to Election Day. Um, uh, clearly, Bobby Rush is uh, saying that Lori Lightfoot's voters would have blood on their hands after the next police shooting was probably the most incendiary statement that was made. <clears throat> Excuse me, there was, there was a time when if something like that were said in a campaign in Chicago, both candidates in, in, in a race would have issued statements saying, okay, guys, cool it. Uh, and why didn't you do something like that in this case? You know, Congressman Rush speaks for himself, and he's been a civil rights activist his entire life, and he's focused on, in this instance, focused on police misconduct and the unfair treatment of brown and black young people in our criminal justice system. You know, I wouldn't necessarily have said anything in, in that way, but... Congressman Rush spoke uh, for himself. And, you know, my view is that what we need to focus on is not the rhetoric that he used, but the substantive case that he was making, that police misconduct is a real challenge in our city, and so is the unjust treatment of African Americans and members of the Latinx community uh, in our criminal justice system. And I've spent the last nine years as president of the county uh, focused on criminal justice reform and trying to be sure that uh, young people and adults as well, are treated well in our criminal justice system and are not penalized for their poverty. So we've worked a lot on bond court reform to be sure that people don't spend weeks or months in jail simply because they're too poor to pay their bond. And that kind of criminal justice reform work, I think, is is uh, of concern to Congressman Rush as well, and, and I know that he's supportive of. Um, in contrast to what, do you believe, is... Uh, Lori Lightfoot's record on criminal justice reform. Uh, she also points to that as one of her uh, cornerstone issues and says her work at the, uh, at the police board um, and even her work when she was uh, with the police department in the uh, Office of Professional Standards would suggest that she was trying to tighten up on police misconduct and, and reform the police department. I think it's important to remember that the positions that she's held, three appointments from, from uh, Mayor Daley and, and two appointments from 
uh, Mayor Emanuel, were, were appointments uh, by, by the mayor. They weren't elective offices. And, you know, the first thing you want in somebody who's appointed to an office is, is loyalty. And, you know, I think what she's done in her, her government service is, you know, gone along to get along. Uh, and her more recent efforts to describe herself differently, I think, don't reflect the full breadth of her government experience. Um, I want to stay with the issue of criminal justice reform for a bit uh, because it is something both candidates uh, claim as philosophical cornerstones. Um, the Illinois Justice Project uh, asked you both uh, how you can meet justice reform goals and still keep the streets safe. In other words, you know, make the changes that you need on the police department, but also let the police do their jobs. Well, you know, as we've looked at, at our efforts in bond court, uh, which have resulted in a, a reduction of about 40% in the jail population, mainly because people accused of nonviolent crimes no longer spend the time between their arrests and the disposition of their case in jail. As I said, basically we were, we were penalizing people for their poverty. If they couldn't pay their cash bond, they ended up in jail as they waited for their hearings and their trial. And the overwhelming majority of those people were accused of nonviolent crimes, low-level drug offenses, uh, shoplifting, things people do to get money for their drugs, and so on. So, you know, we've, we've made a real effort to reform bond court, and we've been successful in that effort. And, you know, I think that's indicative of the kind of work that needs to be done. And let me just say, that means that we can focus our resources on people accused of violent crimes. And it also means that there's a, an opportunity to um, divert those resources that we're presently spending in the jail to things like violence reduction, anti-recidivism, and restorative justice efforts, which we began in, in about five or six years ago to kind of cut the pipeline of people coming into our criminal justice system. So the county, for the first time, began investing in community-based organizations that do that difficult work of, of as I said, violence prevention, anti-recidivism, and restorative justice work. And, and let me just say, what we found as we've reduced the jail population is that we still have really good compliance. Um, I think it's about... 86% of the people who um, are released uh, without cash bond show up for their hearings and their trial. And uh, the same proportion don't pick up a new charge in that interval. So we haven't seen a reduction in compliance as a result of, of the fact that fewer people are in our jail. But now over to the police officer side of the equation, what in these moves also or, or should give police officers a sense that this is not being done, these reforms are not being done to them? No, of course not. You know, I always say that being a police officer is a very difficult job, and we're, we should all be grateful to the many officers who struggle every day to do that difficult job well. And I think it's incumbent upon the mayor to remind our residents of the good work that, that so many of our police officers do and of their commitment to their job. So when we talk about criminal justice reform and we talk about the need for holding our police uh, accountable, we have to be sure that we also um, point out to the residents how deeply indebted we are to the people who serve and protect us. Um, is training the major change that needs to be made when it comes to police officers or are there other things that you would uh, either put before that or, or equal to that? Well, I think we need to address the culture in the police department. So the first thing is we need to acknowledge that there's a code of silence in the police department. That's the first thing. The second thing is we need to acknowledge that, you know, the racism that um, 
infects our society as a whole is also present in the police department and that many of the interactions on the street between police officers and and african-american and latino residents latinx residents uh, you know are, are 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 problematic and so acknowledging that there's a code of silence and recognizing that there's racism in the police department are beginning and we have to address that in in terms of police culture but we also need to invest in officer training and you know shame on all of us for not providing more opportunities for professional development for our police officers crisis intervention training use of force training better supervision for our officers you know the 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 best practice is one sergeant for every eight officers and some of our districts we have one sergeant to 30 officers so they're not properly supervised but we also have to hold our officers you know in our, our police department accountable the most serious crimes murders and shootings you know we have an abysmal record of bringing people to justice out of every hundred shootings in this country there's an arrest in 62 or 63 of the cases that's the average nationally but in chicago it's 15 out of every hundred for murders and less than 10 out of every 100 for shootings. So if you live in a community plagued by violence and you know that the criminal justice system uh, is going to result in 8 out of 10 people getting away with murder, if your brother or your friend or your uncle is, is, is murdered, the temptation of course is to take revenge and retaliate yourself because you know that the criminal justice system is unlikely to bring anybody to justice. And of course that has a domino effect on the violence. So we really we have to invest in training, we have to invest in better supervision, we have to hold our police officers accountable, and we have to address some of the cultural challenges in the police department that hamper their ability to secure the collaboration and cooperation of our residents that they so desperately need to solve crimes. Um, we only have about a minute and a half left. Um, how concerned are you about some of the talk that I'm, I'm hearing more and more from people in various communities, but mostly the African-American community, that having a brilliant, capable African-American woman as mayor and a brilliant, capable African-American woman as county board president is not a bad outcome, which obviously wouldn't <laughs> give, give you what you're, you're shooting for here. But I, some people are saying, wait a minute, we could have two African-American women running the whole area. You know, look, I'm, it's true I'm president of the Cook County Board of Commissioners. I'm running for mayor because I believe that it's important that we have both growth and opportunity in our city, that we focus on not just growth downtown but growth in our neighborhoods, and that we ensure that every person who lives in our city believes that there's opportunity for themselves and their children. And I've spent my life working to transform, to change neighborhoods as aldermen, improving our public schools, bringing new housing, affordable rental housing into communities, working with police and community to make the streets safe. And as county board president, I've worked to transform institutions, our public health and our public safety um, systems, and had great success. And I think that the experience that I've had, both as a local elected official and as the chief executive of the second largest county in the country, prepare me uniquely for the job to be mayor of the city of Chicago. And it's not an entry-level position. You're listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue, and that was Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle, who is in a runoff election for mayor of Chicago with former federal prosecutor Lori Lightfoot. And we will have 
her interview, and more after this brief message. How do you win an election in 2020? Winning elections is about reaching the right people with a message that is relevant and impactful. Sin Fronteras Media provides the strategic direction, effective multicultural messaging, laser-focused targeting, and careful execution to winning campaigns across Illinois. This is Jason Bauman from Sin Fronteras Media. I want to invite you to visit wewininillinois.com to learn how we can help you leverage digital data and effective messaging to win your next election. We're talking with the candidates for Chicago mayor in Tuesday's runoff elections. Next up is Lori Lightfoot, an attorney who has not only headed the Chicago Police Board, but worked for the Police Department's Office of Professional Standards, the Office of Emergency Management and Communications, and she chaired Mayor Emanuel's Police Accountability Task Force after the Laquan McDonald police killing. I talked with Lori Lightfoot at her campaign headquarters on North Dearborn. Toward week's end, um, after not running commercials for about a week, uh, Tony Preckwinkle came out with an ad that continued the theme, uh, her theme of the past a few days, and that is pointing out the accusation from a judge that you mishandled or withheld evidence in a lawsuit involving a 2004 <laughs> fire in which children died. Um, you seemed angry at that attack. Mostly because I feel like there's a lot of things that get said and done in the course of a political campaign in the heat of battle. But trying to score political points on the backs of four innocent children who perished in a fire is really beyond the pale. I, I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. Particularly disturbing to me is her representations of my role um, are completely false. Um, we put out a statement the other day from my then boss, Ron Huberman, <coughs> of the city's 911 center. But when that fire happened, I remember it very clearly. It was on a Friday night. It was about midnight. Um, the fire station happened to be just down the block. We we were on, on notice, of course, that that fire happened. And then the next day, um, we wanted to make sure we understood precisely what happened since it did involve the, the death of these children. Went through every 911 call. We actually preserved the, the tapes at that point. And then we did everything that we could to brief the mayor, make sure that um, all the emergency services, we looked to see what we could have done better. So we were, we were, did a full court press to understand what had happened in that fire. So then sometime later, of course, a lawsuit was filed. Um, the, we got a, um, an order in, um, and I directed the tape review unit to make sure that they had preserved the tapes. I followed the normal protocol that I no did, and for reasons that are still inexplicable to me, that didn't happen. So the judge can say whatever the judge says. I know precisely what I did and that nothing on the OEMC side, the 911 center side, um, had any impact on what happened in that house late that night on a Friday. So what I've seen is a series of attacks that take a fact or a, a smidgen of a fact, and then try to turn it in a way that demonizes me, that makes it look like I'm some horrible, callous person, which is just nonsense. But that's what happens when you have a campaign that's literally out of money, that is focused on resume instead of the future, um, and started from election night with these mean-spirited attacks. Her strategy has been, since the night of February 26, to try to demonize me. And I meant what I've said, which is, I then am in the situation, you know, I'm an adult, 
Um, I've been through lots of things. It makes me know never mind. But when I have to sit and explain to my daughter that adults lie, that I have to talk to her about what it means when somebody's a bully, and that um, it, it, and the, the, the hardest conversation is to tell her it's simply not okay if somebody disagrees from you, with you or has a difference of opinion that it's not okay to demonize them. You can't take the mentality of winning at all cost. And I'd, I have been very clear because I know it to be true. Our children are watching. I think it's critically important that adults model good behavior. We have so many challenges in our city and our children should be able to look to adults in public life as role models and examples of how to conduct themselves. I mean, this has been a campaign where the rhetoric has been heated at times. Uh, I mean, the Preckwinkle camp, not only about that issue, but uh, has also tried to paint you as a phony progressive. Uh, but you portrayed uh, County Board President Preckwinkle as somebody who was part of a, of a broken system that she says she worked hard to take over and now has changed. Well, she says frequently, for example, that she uh, fought the machine three times and finally won. Let's talk about who that was. It was Tim Evans. Tim Evans at the time was Harold Washington's floor leader. He's hardly the personification of the machine. You know, but again, I think the things that we ought to be talking about are the future. We ought to be talking about how we're going to address some of the city's biggest challenges, whether it's public safety, public education, affordable housing, um, dealing with our city finances, which are under duress. Those are the things that people want to hear from us. And fundamentally, it boils down from the conversations I've had with ordinary citizens. How are you going to improve my life? Convince me that I have a reason to stay in Chicago. I talked to somebody this morning who said, um, I moved out of the city, I moved my business, all my workers, because I couldn't take anymore. It was terrible. But if you get elected, I'm going to move back in. Now, of course, I was gratified to hear that, but I want people to be enthusiastic about living in this incredible city, not just in people in the downtown or on the north side. I want people in Roseland, in Pullman, in Inglewood, in Austin, in West Lawndale, North Lawndale, West Garfield Park, to feel this incredible vibrancy under their feet, too. That's what we should be talking about. If you become mayor, how well would you be able to work with the woman who is now your opponent but would be the county board president and presumably still uh, chair of the Democratic Party? Well, look, there's a lot of things that uh, obviously the county and the city have interlocking interest, and that's important for us to recognize, which necessitates a good, productive working relationship. You know, I, I, win or lose on April 2nd, I'm going to be moving forward. Of course, I hope that we win. And if I'm fortunate enough to become the next mayor, we're going to start trying to build those bridges as quickly as we can, certainly at the staff level, which is where most of the work will, will take place. But we, we, we owe it to the residents of our city and county and to the voters to make sure that we are working as cooperatively as we possibly can. I want to talk a little bit about, not just a little bit, but uh, about criminal justice reform, because that is something uh, both uh, of you uh, uh, cite as, as basically cornerstones of mm -hmm. your efforts. Um, the Illinois Justice Project, uh, you'll probably recall that survey, sure. asked both of you how you can meet the justice reform goals that you uh, uh, want to 
but still keep the streets safe and mm-hmm. let police uh, do their jobs. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not to me, it's not an either-or choice. There's been a prevailing narrative, not just here in Chicago, but nationally, that if you are holding police accountable and you believe in reform, that somehow you're anti-police. Or you can only be pro-police by saying, let them do whatever they need, need to get done, that the, the means justify, the end justifies the means. I don't believe in that. I think that we've got to have a well, really well-trained, best-in-class police force that understands the limits of power, that is um, involved in respectful constitutional engagement, and that recognizes that um, having the community on their side is the most powerful tool, full stop. So I think we can get there. We're not there now. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. But fundamentally, we have to make sure that we are showing that we are being fair, that we are treating people um, and respecting their civil rights. And we need to make sure um, that we are continuing to build legitimacy within the police department. The, the, the salacious stories, the out-of-control settlements and judgments, that undermines legitimacy of the police department and undermines, more specifically, those officers who come on the job every day, give their heart and soul, run towards danger. We need to make sure that we're uplifting those folks, and the best way that we can do it, in my view, is to make sure that they've got the resources they need to be successful and weed out those who are engaged in intentional misconduct. How do you get the police rank and file, and to, by some extension, the FOP, the police union, Mm -hmm. to buy into this as something that is happening for them and not to them? Well, I hear from officers who are friends of mine and officers on the street now that they're supportive of the things that we're trying to do because of the things that I just said, which is, who, who is going to be against better training? Who is going to be against um, creating a wellness program so that we're supporting our officers and all the trauma and stress? Those are things that are going to directly translate to their ability to be effective on the street, meaning be fair and honest um, with uh, individual people in neighborhoods. So those are the things that we are, are a necessity. And every organization should be about accountability. You can't succeed if people are not held accountable, if there's not a clear mission, um, if they um, if they are not um, supervised well. So those are all the things that are really important. I think most police officers understand that. Now, I can't account for the leadership of the FOP. I hope that they understand that they need to take a different public posture. But if they don't, we're still going to get there because we're going to win the hearts and minds of the line police officers. What do you think of Tony Preckwinkle's uh, proposal for an Office of Criminal Justice? Is that something that could help matters? Well, I think it's it's a it's a subset of what I propose is a mayor's office for public safety that has a fairly broad portfolio, and of co- course, um, criminal justice reform should be a part of that. But we have to think holistically about what it is that we need and make sure that we've got the programs and the policies and the personnel in place um, and looking. Um, at this entire ecosystem of public safety and criminal justice, not a tiny sliver of it. Um, I want to go on to uh, the issue of experience, because it's one that keeps coming up. Uh, Your opponent stresses her experience and how well she functions under the very real pressures of executive office. So what do you say to voters who will think to themselves, Lori Lightfoot is bright, she's dynamic, she has good ideas, but does she have the experience for this job? 
Well, I, I don't have the experience of being a decades-long politician. I'll give her that. But I have a tremendous amount of experience and depth that I bring to the job. I helped um, a part of a senior executive team in the police department under Superintendent Hillard. I helped run the city's 911 center, both through a catastrophic failure, the 911 system, um, and um, several uh, weather and man-made related incidents like the LaSalle, old LaSalle Bank um, Street fire, where I was the on-scene um, incident manager after uh, the fire was put out. Um, and then, of course, I tackled um, challenges in the city's procurement department at a time when the procurement department was completely dysfunctional, wasn't using best practices, and particularly the MBE, the Minority Business Enterprise and Women Business Enterprise uh, programs were, uh, were near collapse. And more recently, uh, in my role as president of the Chicago Police Board and leader of the Police Accountability Task Force, taken on and managed tough issues, brought people together um, and, and uh, from all over the city with a lot of different views on some tough issues. And of course, I've been a senior equity partner at uh, one of the world's largest um, international law firms where I helped um, my clients who were um, Fortune 100 companies in some of their toughest um, days, but also small businesses. I ran into uh, one of my former clients today who came over to the office to say hello to me and we helped her through a very difficult challenge that she was having. So I've got a depth of experience. Yeah, I haven't been a career politician, thank goodness, because I'm, I'm not carrying that baggage with me. I haven't cut a bunch of deals um, that are going to compromise my ability to do the right thing. And what I think people want and why they're rallying to our cause is they understand we have to break from the past. We must have change. That was Mayor candidate Lori Lightfoot. I would like to thank her and opponent Tony Preckwinkle for spending this time with us. If you want a copy of this program or just to hear it again, please visit our website at wbbmnewsradio.com. Just follow the podcast link and scroll down. You can also find our podcast on radio.com. I'll be back next week with another edition of At Issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com.